Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This week on the Garden DC podcast, we're speaking to three staff members at the U.S. Botanic Garden in Washington, D.C., Sahara Moon Chapatin, Susan Pell, and Devin Dotson. Welcome, everyone. Thanks. Hey, Kathy. It's great to be here. Hey, so this is a fun experiment with three interview subjects and just me. (laughs) So we'll try to balance it out and give everybody equal time as well. I'm going to start with you, Sahara Moon. Um, How did you come to the U.S. Botanic Garden? Tell us your title and what a typical work day is for you. Hi, well, thanks for for having us. Um, I, my title is I'm the executive director here at the United States Botanic Garden And I took a bit of a circuitous path here. I started out um, as a botanist. My training is in the plant sciences, but I spent some time at the U.S. Agency for International Development working on food and agriculture around the world um, before coming here to the U.S. Botanic Garden. And it's so great to be back in the plant world. And, you know, my average day is a little bit of everything. I I get to kind of do focus on on all the various aspects of the garden. And um, it's a lot of fun. Great. Um, same question to you, Susan Pell. Sure. So my title is Deputy Executive Director, and I came uh, to the U.S. Botanic Garden uh, directly from a fellowship that I had at the National Science Foundation through uh, AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. But I've really spent my whole career at Botanic Gardens. Uh, I've worked at uh, two other major gardens, both in New York City prior to coming to USBG. And I, uh, at those gardens, I was really a plant scientist. And so when I came to um, USBG, I was really in a different role where I was overseeing both our science, but also uh, our public programs. So all of the sort of educational uh, endeavors that we, that we undertake from exhibits to tours to programs. And, uh, and so I'm excited, to, I'm excited to, to now have this role where I uh, help Sahara Moon oversee the entire garden and and I really focus on the sort of daily operations of the garden. And uh, my, my typical day is not typical. I really don't have a typical day. Uh, much like Sahar Moon said, uh, we really kind of deal with everything um, from, you know, legislative communications to uh, giving tours to the public, um, to uh, addressing, you know, personnel issues, to, um, you know, to just really helping to interpret the, the wonder and the beauty uh, and, the, and the conservation importance of our our living collection. Mm, wonderful. And I'm going to circle back on a few of those things, Susan, in our discussion in a minute. But uh, last but not least, Devin Dotson. Hey, Kathy, good to talk to you again. Uh, I'm the public affairs specialist here at the United States Botanic Garden, and I get to communicate all about the garden and, and tell the stories of the plants and the people here taking care of those plants and the collection and our history, uh, which is been really exciting this year because we're turning 200 years old, or we have turned. Actually, May was the the key date in our anniversary that we're celebrating, but founded back in May of 1820. Um, so yeah, U.S. Botanic Gardens turning 200 this year, and my path to get here was through the 
agriculture, horticulture side of the plant world. Um, I'm from Alabama and growing up in a rural area of the state, I was very active in Future Farmers of America and uh, ended up getting a undergraduate degree in a specialty journalism program that actually was agricultural communication. Uh, and then my master's focused on environmental communication. So I've loved plants and gardens my whole life. And so being able to kind of come, come here and be at the garden going on six years now um, combines personal passion for gardens and plants and gardening uh, with my kind of professional training of communicating about plants and the natural world. Fantastic. And uh, I know a little bit about what you do every day, Devin, but do you want to share some of your daily tasks? <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. So I, I, you know, I, I work with wonderful people like you, um, you know, helping anyone who's kind of got a media or communication inquiry that comes in, uh, but also working a lot on site with our different teams uh, to try to tell the stories. So helping our public programs team and all the different programming that they're doing. I run all of our social media accounts. And so, you know, doing everything from taking and sharing photos of what's happening around the garden uh, to be able to promote and, and help uh, connect people with our programs, a lot of which is online right now. And, uh, you know, helping tell those stories of how people can still continue to connect with plants, uh, even in this very digital focused world right now, where we're not gathering as much in, in person. Um, but also, you know, I do help with anything that kind of has writing associated with it. So if you come on site at any point and you're reading some interpretation, I do, do at least a last pass on those. If I'm not involved in the writing up front, I do some editing work, uh, copy editing and looking for those sorts of pieces. Oversee our website. It's got words or communications attached to it. <laughs> I typically end up having fingers in it at some point along the way, whether I develop it or just help kind of uh, cap it off at the end. Fantastic. Um, Sahara Moon, you joined as executive director um, just a few years ago, and, but I was going to ask if you could describe for our listeners, uh, many of whom might never have been to the U.S. Botanic Garden, a bit about um, the staff size, um, what kind of public garden it is, and, and your mission. Sure. Um we, yeah, it's a fantastic place. We have um, a conservatory. We have outdoor gardens. We also have a production facility uh, a little ways away where we grow all the plants and maintain our collections. We have about 70 people at the garden. And we have folks who obviously are involved in the horticulture, the gardeners. We have um, a team focused on education and, and outreach and engagement. We have our mechanics who keep the greenhouses warm and the facilities running. And we have our administrative staff who do so much of the work to keep our, our personnel um, well taken care of and, and all the ordering and the purchasing. Our mission is to educate people about the importance of plants. It's that simple. And we educate people about the importance of plants with respect to conservation, with respect to the economics of, of how we use plants, the aesthetics, even the therapy, the horticulture, um, the, 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 the beauty of plants, really any way in which plants can, can impact people's lives, we try to help people really understand it better. That's so cool. And you do learn so much from a lot of the exhibits and the explanation. And I assume that's, um, Susan Pell, a, a great deal of your job is the explanatory um, parts and not just the permanent exhibits, but also the temporary ones. Um, so for those who haven't been to the U.S. Botanic Garden ever, um, if 
when uh, COVID is over and we do have access to the facility, or you guys can talk about how COVID has impacted you in a, in a minute, um, but the collection inside the conservatory is divided up by climate zone. Um, Susan, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. So each of uh, the rooms in the conservatory has a different theme, and many of them are based on the sort of habitat that the plants would occur in naturally. So we have a tropics house, a world deserts house, uh, a room that we call Garden Primeval, which is uh, sort of meant to represent the flora, the existing species today, uh, whose lineages go back to the Jurassic period. So it doesn't have any flowering plants. Uh, and then we have an orchid room, a Mediterranean room, etc. And there's a rare and endangered room uh, as well. Um, we have a, a large economic collection. So two of our rooms have an economic uh, theme to them. The, the garden court, which is the first large room that you come into when you enter the conservatory, uh, really features uh, plants that are economically important to people uh, for textiles, fibers, uh, fruits, vegetables, spices, etc. And then we also have a medicinal plants room that really focuses on plants from all over the world uh, that have been used traditionally uh, by by native peoples uh, in traditional medicine, but also in Western medicine as well as pharmaceuticals. Hmm. And rolling back uh, the clock 200 years, <laughs> we'll call on Devin to talk a little bit about why the U.S. Botanic Garden was established and, and how that mission became important to the American people. Yeah, you know, if, if we look back prior to 1820, you know, going even back into the 1700s, that's when our, we trace our roots back. Um, you know, one of the, the key elements in our history that gives us kind of a link to talk about is there was a letter from George Washington, Washington excuse me, <clears throat> when they were planning Washington, D.C., as this new federal city and kind of all the things that could or should be placed in it and some possible locations for those as they were kind of mapping out this city to be built from scratch. And uh, Washington said, hey, here's some ideas of some very specific locations where we could put a botanic garden. Um, so from the very beginning of this new capital city being created, um, you know, George Washington was proposing this idea of a botanic garden and some specific locations for it. And um, he didn't quite live to, to see us come to fruition. And so we uh, actually got that founding several years later in 1820. But it really kind of helped set the stage for why economic plants were and continue to be an important collection that we talk about um, because from the very beginning of, of our country being founded, people were looking at what do they need to grow for food and for agriculture and for economic purposes, you know, where, where are the jobs gonna be, where's the money gonna be? And plants have always been at the core of that. So really thinking of, you know, what would grow or could grow in this sort of new world environment that they were creating there um, was on the brain for a lot of the founding fathers. A lot of them had their own farms, um, and they were really looking at what plants they could grow there, whether they were native to the uh, North American continent or bringing them in from other parts of the world that they could grow. So there from the you know 1700s, we have this letter from George Washington. Uh, we actually begin kind of our development in the 1810s when there's the Columbian Institute and they wanted to have some plants and then they get a formal land grant in 1820. And that is the May date that we um, date our establishment to when they officially got a grant, um, a, not a grant rather, but a, an official land um, there at the, the steps of the Capitol. And in our 200 years, there's been many decision points along the way about, do we stay at the foot of the Capitol? Do we move somewhere else? Um, we were founded by Congress. We continue to report to Congress. So we're a member of the legislative branch of the federal government. 
Um, and there's been about six key decision points through our 200 years that Congress has had to decide, do, they, do we keep reporting to them and do we keep in our current location? Um, and every time, you know, Congress has decided, yes, indeed, to keep us reporting to them, keep us um, in our location there at the steps of the Capitol. And I think that's it gives us just such an interesting, unique uh, ability to interact with so many people who may or may not have had plans in their day when they're in Washington, D.C. to go visit and explore a botanic garden. But because of our unique location right there in the middle of the National Mall, um, you know, we get to touch so many people. We, we bring through more than a million visitors every year in a typical year and have for several years. Um, and, and we know that if we weren't right there, if we were in a different place, if we were way outside the city, it would be you know, a different challenge of getting people to us and, and connecting with people. So we might be kind of land constrained being right in the middle of the National Mall, right at the Capitol, but it really affords us a, a wonderful, unique opportunity that we continue today telling the stories of, of economic plants and, and how plants affect our lives every day. And that's such a wonderful point, Devin, that so many times our public gardens are not publicly accessible or not at least easily accessible um, and having um, this wonderful indoor and outdoor garden in the middle of an urban location and you know literally at the foot of capitol hill um, makes it open to so many people and the fact that it's free and um, pre-covid open uh every day of the year, I believe. Um, Sahara Moon, can you talk about the experience during COVID and maybe what your future plans are um, in that in this period? Sure. It's been a really interesting journey to be here at the garden during COVID. You know, in March, we um, closed to the public along with, with most other places in town when it, you know, it was clear that it that was the safest thing to do both for the visiting public and for our employees. And then we very quickly pivoted into thinking about how can we maintain our, our priceless living plant collections, our wonderful facilities, while also maintaining um, the safety of our employees. And so we we came down to a skeleton crew to ensure that we were doing what we needed to do on site, but that anyone who could telework um, was doing that from home and that we could um, keep our employees as safe as possible. And then at the same time, we didn't want to lose our connection or um, stop delivering on our mission with our visitors and, and all the participants in our programs. And so we very quickly pivoted all of our programming to be online. And we've stood up a really great um, series of, of programs and have really enjoyed being able to share what we share here at the Botanic Garden at times with now an even greater audience, people who May not have been able to come to our programs um, on site because of timing or distance or location are now able to to enjoy those programs so that's been really exciting to see and then um you know that's what we've been doing we are making plans for for reopening we're obviously um looking at um the, the region and following the progress of how we're managing the the pandemic and we will um, open when it's safe to do so, but but we are actively planning for that. And my hope is that that we will better open in some form um, with with most likely with limited capacity. But um, that's our hope, and and we'll obviously share more information when we're able to do that. Great, I can't wait for that. And I've been down to the mall a couple times during the COVID period. It's been very sparsely populated, and it, it was kind of nice but kind of eerie at the same time. But I did enjoy being able to explore Bartoldi Park, um, which is part of, of your footprint um, and is still and currently open to the public. 
which is yes. it's nice to experience that. Yes, both the, the Bartoldi Fountain and Gardens and also the beautiful terrace gardens around the conservatory have both been open throughout. And it's been really nice seeing visitors being able to come and, and spend some time in what's a very tranquil spot. Because as you said, the, there's a lot less foot traffic and, and car traffic down there right now. Yeah, and I think there are, are several uh, people who I know personally who live on Capitol Hill and they almost feel like the Terrace Gardens and Bartoli Gardens are kind of their personal park. It's a, it's a great place to meet friends and uh, enjoy the fresh air. And I know, I think one of the displays right now that was in coordination with your 200th anniversary um, was in partnership with Monticello. And a, a few episodes ago on the Garden DC podcast, we had Peggy Cornett um, talking a little bit about their contributions. Um, is is it Susan who would be the best one to talk about that display? About, I'm sorry, about which display? Uh, the display of the edible garden at Bartoldi. Ah, the kitchen garden. Yes, yes. Yeah, I think any of us can really talk about that, but I'm, but I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah, so we for this year, uh, as part of our uh, bicentennial celebration, we partnered with Monticello to uh, feature some some plants of a, of a founding father um, that certainly had an interest in uh, the creation of a botanic garden uh, here in the nation's capital. And so we're growing some some plants that they they grew from seeds uh, and in in the garden and interpreting those in the context um, of Thomas Jefferson and, and Monticello. And it's been a, it's been a really nice partnership with them. Uh, we hope to to continue that, and certainly through this this fall, we'll have um, that interpretation up and and the plants uh, in that garden. That garden itself has been just a really wonderful addition to Bartoldi Park. When we when we renovated uh, Bart Park, uh, according to the Sustainable Sites Initiative um, guidelines a few years ago, uh, we we installed the kitchen garden, and it's just been received so well by the public, and it's really just creates a wonderful opportunity for us to to display many different ways of growing edible plants and also different varieties of edible plants that can be grown here in the Mid-Atlantic and other places in the country. And it gives people a really great opportunity to see where their food comes from. And it gives us a really great opportunity to have tastings uh, and uh, to do some programming around um, the food that we grow uh, in, the, in the park. And then also it's been really great uh, during uh, during the pandemic to be able to donate some of the food that we grow in the kitchen garden to local food banks. That's great to hear that some of it is donated. And I enjoy, especially on the Facebook page for the U.S. Botanic Garden, the Cook Sisters um, food segments and their wonderful contributions there. And I have to admit that I've also participated in a few of the yoga sessions on Saturday mornings that I was not able to bring my yoga mat downtown previously um, just having a crazy schedules on weekends. And now due to COVID, I can do yoga online with the U.S. Botanic Garden. So that's a great opportunity there. Devin, um, can you talk a little bit more about what is being shared on social media now? Um, are you doing tours of the inside conservatory plants that people might not have access to? Yeah. So it, it's kind of, we, we try to do a, a lot of different things because the one thing that I've heard in trying to do any sort of surveying is that there are there are very few times that a single thing or a single type of content pleases everyone. And so, um, you know, and, and we're really trying to, to scatter the seed far, as you will. Um, and so, it, yes, we've done some tours, especially at the beginning in the spring. Um, you know, we had just launched both our bicentennial exhibit celebrating our 200 years of history and also our big orchid exhibit for the year. Um, and so when we realized that people wouldn't be able to come through, 
I did a multiple, multiple part series, a video series of, of a tour of that orchid exhibit, and then have done several things like that since going through a different area of the garden um, and doing kind of walking tours and recording different pieces. We've definitely done some of those. Um, we found that people really like kind of plant specific uh, spotlights. So whether it's just celebrating foliage or some sort of ethnobotany, some sort of human connection to the, to the plant, whether it's a medicinal plant or a food plant or something. Um, so we're doing uh, a decent number of those, but also I think we found that just having something beautiful also performs really well because people I think are just looking for a touch point of something calming and beautiful in their life. And so um, back in the spring, uh, quite a number of museums kind of started sharing what they call this museum moment of Zen. And it's just something peaceful, whether it's a photo or a short video clip, uh, but just something to kind of share a little bit of beauty in people's worlds. Um, and I've can continue, continue doing those because they people seem to really like them um, and uh, and appreciate just what's beautiful and happening around the garden. Uh, but the other thing I'll share is that yes, we're we're doing programs, right? And so um, every Saturday morning we're continuing our our yoga um, through the garden series, and so that's happening online for free every Saturday. The Cook Sisters are now with us every week. That's uh, an increase in the quantity of times that we're working with the Cook Sisters to offer cooking demos and. We're doing our first ever live Q&A cooking demos that are just rolling out. Uh, in fact, we have one um, tomorrow with Chef Billy Riddle, um, who's an, uh, a Mid-Atlantic area chef. Um, but, but we're doing several with the Cook Sisters this fall as well. And it's kind of an expansion on those cooking demos they've already been doing, but, but making them live so that people can really interact and ask questions about not only what they're doing, but maybe there's some other related topic. And so I think there's some pickling and canning and all sorts of other topics that we get questions from people about, hey, I've got all this produce that I've been growing. I don't know what to do with it now. Can you give me some ideas? And so we're excited to kind of expand and, and offer something different. So, yeah, so really just trying to share, share lots of different things. I, I can totally understand having to do all aspects of plants and share them. And especially with all these new gardeners that are coming on board because they have now the time uh, and availability during the COVID period, there is, of course, the point in the harvest happening now where we have to convert all of that to either freezing or canning or preserving, as you say. Um, Sahara Moon, I wanted to ask, kind of put you on the spot about some favorite plants in the collection. Is there one in particular um, that you always gravitate towards, or maybe there are a few plants that uh, you think are the most important? Um, I'm particularly thinking of, I was a docent for several years at the uh, Natural History Museum at the Smithsonian, and somebody would run in literally and say, I have a train in 20 minutes, what should I see? <laughs> and they would run through and we would always be, of course, the Hope Diamond, you know, was on that top three list and a couple of other items. Yeah, that's a great question. It's a hard one. I um, I have a lot of favorite plants. I think if someone wanted were to say, what should I do? I only have 20 minutes. Um, I might actually, rather than point them towards a specific plant, I might point them towards a place. And so I think going up into our catwalk. Um, which is the sort of elevated level within our tropics room, which is the largest room in the conservatory, 92 feet tall. I would have them go up to the catwalk and spend some time up there, um, provided it's not the middle of August, because it gets pretty warm up there. And just sort of feel what it's like to be in a, in a tropical forest where you can look down on the canopy and see the different layers of canopy and really 
have that experience. It's so rare. We're, we're always standing at the bottom of the trees looking up, which is a great view. But, you know, I spent some time doing canopy biology early in my career, and there's really, there's nothing to compare with being up in the forest canopy. And I think this is one of the few ways that you get to have that experience here in DC. So that's, I think, what I would recommend. Other than that, we have some fantastic plants in the collection. I really enjoy being in our rare and endangered room where we can, um, there's plants that are, you know, some are extinct in the wild that are very rare and, and reading those stories and, and hearing, learning about plants and kind of sitting there and looking at this beautiful plant and, and thinking about its future and how we can help to ensure that it continues to exist is also a really great place to be. Hmm. That is a wonderful experience up, up in that um, upper tier, looking down into the jungle. And it's especially nice in midwinter. <laughs> so, so yes. nice to have that heat and humidity there. Um, Susan Pell, I was going to ask you a, uh, pretty much the same question of, of favorite plants or favorite collections in the in the conservatory, particularly. This is such a hard question for a plant person, um, as I'm sure you can appreciate. Uh, so I, I really I don't have a favorite plant. Um, one of my favorite things to do at the garden is to actually sit at the at the visitor information desk when I have when I have the chance, and I and I love when a visitor comes up and asks me that question of I only have 30 minutes or Maybe they'll say, what's the most important thing to see here? Um, and I frequently leave the desk and, and walk with the person and I ask them what they are interested in. You know, what are their hobbies? What do they do? They have a particular plant that they like or a particular type of plants or maybe a habitat that they're interested in. And then I'll take them to that space in the garden where I can connect to their own interests and tell a story or tell several stories about some of the individual plants that we have. And there's so many. I mean, we have wonderful um, ant plants. This is sort of a group of plants that aren't closely related to each other, but have all evolved to have some very interesting relationship with ants. Um, typically there's a, a mutualist, mutual, mutually beneficial relationship that the plant has with the ant, so that the plant is providing a resource to the ant and the ant is providing some kind of a resource to the plant. So I love telling those stories. Um, I love uh, our um, orchid collection. There's so many stories that you can tell about different orchids and it's our largest collection uh, of plants or just single family collection of plants, I should say. Um, so I don't really have a, a, a favorite plant, and, but I do often have a favorite thing that's happening in the conservatory on any given day. So something's in bloom or something's in fruit or something has a crazy new root, it's a different color than it normally is. Uh, and I love to point out those things to visitors that are unique to their experience that day. Hmm. Yeah, the, the sensory experience is so important. Um, everything from seeing a pineapple grow um, to the chocolate <laughs> and the cocoa pods and then of course um, the scent of the orchids when you walk back into the orchid room. So Devin I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you the same thing. What would be your highlights tour if you had to run somebody through? You're stepping into my topic. Mine, mine absolutely would be the economic plants and specifically that garden courtroom. I think it's the, the core collections in that space that are planted all around the room um, are so, I think, inviting for people who may not think that they're interested in plants. Because all of a sudden, when you start sharing, hey, the coffee you might have drank this morning, or the tea, or the chocolate that you ate in the last few days, um, or the clothes you're wearing, you know, when we start making these connections to, to how people interact with plants almost on a daily basis, um, so many of them are in that garden court. Um, we've got coffee and cacao and 
bananas and and vanilla and so many things that I, I think it it for me it's one of my favorite places because you can take someone who might have been drug along as the plus one, right? They're very frequently, if it's a group of people, there's one or two people who are very excited to to be there. And there might be one or two that have been brought along. It might be a spouse. It might be a kid. Um, and that room, I, I kind of see it as a personal challenge to say, hey, can we can we make that link for them? Can we find that connection for them? And that room for me, I think, is the key for, for so many of those conversations that you can really share and point to and talk about you know, the crazy things, the wonderful things that the plants are up to and, and how we interact with them. And so that garden court, really, I, I, I love using that room. And, and we've done tours just of that room by itself, because sometimes if we have a highlights tour that really tries to go through the entire conservatory in less than an hour, and you can't spend too much time in one space, and there's so many stories and connections you can make just in that one room alone that we've uh, done you know, full one hour tours just of that space. Um, and so that, that is my personal favorite connection. We all eat food. We all have to breathe clean air. You know, when you can start with one of those sort of base human needs and kind of share that story of how we grow it, uh, what the plant does to really make sure that it survives and reproduces. Uh, I think that room allows us to tell some really cool stories. Devin, and that brings up uh, what I was about to ask, which is how do you communicate with those people, as you say, the plus ones who have been either dragged or maybe a school group was brought in and they might think of the U.S. Botanic Garden as a plant museum and don't even realize the living collection or the connection to their lives. Yeah, I, I'd love to answer this question. So this is my favorite visitor, basically, the people who didn't really want to come to the garden, uh, because I feel like that's that's where we make a difference every day, right? So if we can reach the people who are not the plant nerds, who aren't the garden enthusiasts, who just came along because they their parents were, you know, drug them along or their spouse or, you know, who knows, they're, they're there against their will in some way. Um, if we can reach those people and make a connection for them to show them how awesome plants are and how essential they are to our lives, uh, then, then that's what we're, that's, we're meeting our mission and doing that. And because we have such an amazing collection and such a beautiful, you know, horticultural display in the conservatory and our outdoor gardens, uh, we're able to do that with pretty little effort, honestly. I can, I've, I don't think I've ever had a visitor that I haven't given them an aha moment uh, when they were there, you know, as, as, as Devin said, a, a plus one. Um, our collection really affords us that ability to, to tell really cool stories about plants that connect to people and into, into their interests and to their lives. Hmm. Yeah, and it's so great to see that connection when it finally sparks in their eyes and they're like, oh, that's what I've been eating or that's what I've been smelling. And exactly. So or the wonderful texture or anything else that they can connect to in the plants. Um, so I want to ask Sahar Moon about some of the outreach the U.S. Botanic Garden does, not necessarily online, but some of the missions, um, say, to boost agriculture and urban growing, um, and then also some of the um, eco um, outreach for like the LEED certification. Sure. Yeah, we certainly consider, you know, the nation, the world, um, our audience, as far as communicating with and, and, and really partnering with, we have 
um, a large number of partners, partnerships with organizations to advance science, to advance conservation, and as you said, to advance um, agriculture, particularly urban agriculture. And that's an area we've been able to really do a lot more on in the last few years, which has been very exciting for us because as, as Devin said, you know, we were rooted in sort of the economic um, basis for plants back um, in the, even going back to the 18th century, the visioning for the garden and agriculture remains such an important area for the United States and for the world. And, and we love being able to connect with people around agriculture. Specifically, we've been working to help and to partner with other gardens to um, enable us all to do more work in urban agriculture, working with communities in the cities. So many urban gardens, so many, sorry, botanic gardens are, are in urban areas. And so it's really natural for us to connect with people around urban agriculture and different gardens do it differently. And, and we've been working to, to really grow skills in this area, um, helping gardens connect with their communities, helping them think about how to um, bring folks into the garden to be more involved in, in agriculture. And we actually had the opportunity this spring to really try to work with a number of gardens to support them through the, the COVID pandemic. We know that so many gardens are partnering with their local communities and they're so indispensable in that way. And then we know that so many people right now are struggling to get access to any food, much less uh, really nutritious, fresh foods, fruits and vegetables that are so necessary. And we wanted to ensure that gardens could really continue supporting their local communities. So we put out a call for proposals in, um, in the late spring, we didn't want gardens to have to stop that very important work of partnering on urban agriculture because gardens of course themselves are hurting so badly right now with, with all the shutdowns across the country, especially in the spring and through the summer. Um, a number, we really got a tremendous response to our call for proposals. We partnered with the American Public Gardens Association on this and we were able to support 28 gardens across the country in working with their local communities to increase food growing activities, increase the production of, of fruits and vegetables, and to continue their educational activities with local communities. So we were just so fortunate that we were well positioned to be able to support those efforts. And that's, you know, that's just an example of the kind of work we're able to do in, in urban agriculture. Um, I might ask Susan if she wants to weigh in on um, the question around the, um, the site certification and, and the sustainability work we do there. Sure, I'll have um, Susan jump in in a second, but I know, Sahara Moon, that you have to run off to another appointment. Um, so I want to thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast this week. And I'm going to keep Devin and Susan on a little bit longer to delve even further into the U.S. Botanic Gardens mission and collection. Great. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. And so, Susan. Sure, happy to pick up on and talk a little bit about Sustainable Sites Initiative. So this is um, a sort of a certification program for sustainable landscaping that we developed in partnership with the Lady Bird Johnson Wallflower Center, uh, which is in Austin, Texas, and also the American Association of Landscape Architects. And uh, we've then turned it over and it's administered by the same organization that administers uh, something that might be more familiar to, to listeners, which is um, lead certification for buildings. And so they also do site certification for landscapes now. And we, as I mentioned, uh, renovated Bartholdi Park uh, a few years ago, um, according to the, the guidelines laid down in the Sustainable Sites Initiative. And those include uh, locally sourcing your materials, using native plants to the extent possible, reusing the materials that are already on the site, um, being conscious of water conservation in your plantings, being conscious of 
services to pollinators and other wildlife uh, in your landscaping, and also looking at the sort of impacts of, to human health of the landscaping. So providing spaces for uh, reflecting, for being in nature, for even maybe doing some you know stretches, yoga poses, that kind of thing. And uh, we've been able to to really implement, obviously, in our renovation of Bartoldi Park, those uh, those principles. But we also really apply those more broadly across the garden in all of our sustainable uh, approaches that we have to really our entire operation. And I can give you some specific examples from Bartoldi Park. If you uh, you can go there now, it is open, and uh, the furniture that you'll sit on is oak furniture that was made from a, a white oak that actually came down naturally very close to DC. I believe it was, Devin can probably tell me exactly where it's from, but it was in the DC area. It fell down naturally in a storm and um, uh, we had a local wood shop uh, make the furniture out of that. Uh, we reused a lot of the, the um, pavement, certainly the soil uh, that was already present in the park before we renovated it. And, um, and we certainly did source our plants locally. We reused as many of the plants as possible. And um, we also, uh, the plants that we couldn't reuse, we actually donated them. They were either used elsewhere on Capitol Hill, and then the remainder of the plants went to DC Public Schools. Just some of the some of the initiatives that we that we used in that, yeah. That's a that's a lot. And I was going to ask Devin, um, and I'll really put you on the spot now, Devin, to say you've had a lot of um, temporary exhibits and other things come in and out over the last few years of different specialties. And I'm specifically thinking of um, the stick sculpture um, temporary exhibit that went in last year. Um, what was maybe one or two of your favorites, um, either from the experience of having it put in or from the public's reaction to it? Yeah. Wow. Um, so for those that, that haven't been to the garden in our conservatory, looking at kind of internally first, um, we now have two gallery spaces that uh, used to have some permanent exhibits for quite a long time. And their lifespan had come to a successful completion. It was time to, to come out. And so just starting a few years ago, we went from having some permanent indoors exhibit spaces to now having open exhibit spaces that could house some temporary exhibits. And so for several years now, we've been creating, uh, mostly creating our own exhibits um, to fill that space and tell different plant stories. I personally loved one that, that Susan actually headed up um, about five years ago, which was Exposed, The Secret Life of Roots. And it really was celebrating looking at prairie plants and the amazingly huge root systems that, uh, that occur underground. Um, and really celebrating kind of the importance of roots and the many functions that they serve. But the whole premise was that you entered and essentially the plants were hanging from a high overhead piece. There's more than 50 plants in there. And everything at your at human eye level was below, below ground. And so everything was kind of happening above you at the actual plants and everything for the, for the lower sort of 10 feet. You could see all the roots uh, hanging down, exposed around you and stuff. And and a roots exhibit may not sound very exciting. In fact, I, I loved standing by the doors of the, of the gallery during that exhibit because I will, I kid you not, more than once I would stand there, um, especially if there was a reporter there with me just kind of talking about the exhibit. It was, it was almost like you had asked someone to give you this perfect moment because they would walk in the door and they would open it up and look and they would go, wow. And, and it's just such, a, I think, an eye-opening moment because... All we see most of the time is what's happening above ground, but you know that analogy of kind of the ducks and the, the furious paddling underwater of the of the feet. 
so many plants kind of have that same sort of story, right? That we only get to see a portion of what's going on in their lives. And there's this intricate story of what's happening underground. And so that, that exhibit for me was really exciting to, to share with people and to see people's reactions to, because it kind of told a hidden side of the plant story. Um, and you mentioned the Patrick Doherty sculpture, which I will say is another personal favorite. So for those who don't know Patrick Doherty, he built these incredibly big and complex uh, sculptures, mostly outdoors, made all out of plant parts. Um, and, and stick works is generally what he calls his type of, of sculpture. They tend to be really long saplings and things, um, you know, 15, 20 feet long, if, if he can get them that long, that he weaves into these very organic sort of shapes and you can walk through them and around them and touch them and stuff. And I had seen his work at some other um, outdoor spaces. And in fact, even in DC, he was part of the Renwick Gallery when it reopened and had their big wonder exhibit a few years ago. And he did an indoor installation there. Um, but I knew that he had this really unique way of using plants and and helping people kind of interact with plants in a new way. And I thought that as part of our big bicentennial celebration this year, um, it would be a great item that we could do outdoors because that's one of the things that we do try to do is to celebrate our outdoor gardens. We have a number of, of native plant areas throughout the outdoor gardens in addition to the Rose Garden and other very popular spots. And so to kind of also celebrate our bicentennial outdoors, uh, we worked with Patrick Doherty and were able to do a site-specific custom sculpture installation last fall. And we were able to open up a, a call for volunteers and let many hundreds of people join in and help us create this stickwork sculpture. It's still, on, still standing on the grounds. Uh, and, and our goal is to have it up for at least another year, maybe two or more uh, if possible. And um, and I think it just really, it's this big, you know, 12 foot tall by like 20 feet long sculpture that you can walk in and through. And it, it just changes kind of depending on where you are in the process of walking through it and looking at different views out toward the other plants in the garden. Um, and one of my personal favorites we were able to do is that we were able to use um, non-native plants from this area to remove some invasive plants and to use those. Uh, Siberian elm, Norway maple, some non-native cherry hybrids. Uh, and we were able to partner with the U.S. National Arboretum and with uh, American Horticulture Society here in the area and remove some non-native plants from both of their locations to use in the sculpture. So it has a really cool conservation story that goes along with it as well. And I love that exhibit so much because it was interactive and you could, you know, touch and experience and go through it where so many of the museums on the mall, it's a, you know, keep your hands in your pockets type experience. So that's so great to, and valuable to have that, especially if, if you're a different type of learner um, than visual. And Susan, I was going to put you on the spot as well to say maybe a, a favorite or two of a past exhibit. Yeah, I hate to sound like a broken record, but I think the Roots exhibit was one of my favorite exhibits that we ever did. Uh, I think Devin's spoken about that uh, quite well. Um, but I, I would just add that we also had agricultural plants that were uh, on display with their roots exposed as well. And the contrast between, you know, soybean root and a native prairie plant root was just so striking that, um, you know, people started having conversations and we started interpreting uh, and sort of doing some programs around perennial um, crops. So crops that you would leave in the ground for many seasons, as opposed to annual crops, which is the majority of our crops now. Another exhibit that I really, really loved was the um, exhibit that we did in partnership with the National Park Service for their, their centennial. So they, they really treated uh, our holiday show train exhibit um, with the National Park's name as their sort of capstone in their centennial celebration year. 
And it was my absolute favorite train show that we've done, really featured uh, wonderful uh, examples from the National Park Service um, from across the country. And uh, it was just really kind of the, the pinnacle of, of excellence from Applied Imagination, our contractor that does that uh, exhibit with us each year. And it was just so wonderful to, to partner with National Park Service. It really, really was a, a fantastic exhibit and was so well received by the, by the public as well. Yeah, I would say the, the miniature buildings made out of plant materials are probably, if you're going to ask the general public, their favorite thing at the U.S. Botanic Garden. That's at least one thing that has become a tradition for many families in the area to, to go and visit over the holidays. Absolutely. And Susan, um, Devin had mentioned the volunteers who, who worked on the Stickworks project. Uh, do you work uh, with volunteers in other areas at the garden? Yeah, we have a wonderful volunteer core that works uh, with our horticulture team and also our public programs teams as well. So they are our docents, they uh, give tours, they help in every aspect, almost all the aspects of horticulture, from repotting to watering to weeding uh, to installing beds and whatnot. So yeah, we, we love our volunteers and it's been it's been really uh, wonderful to kind of stay engaged with them and uh, regular calls that we have with our volunteers uh, throughout the pandemic. Hmm. And Devin, if somebody wants to volunteer, how would they get in contact? The easiest way by far is to go to our website. We have a whole page dedicated just to this to help people find many different ways that they could volunteer with the garden and also even uh, submit an application for review. And that is on our website at usbg.gov slash volunteer. And while you're giving that website, I should ask you to maybe share some of the social media links as well for the USBG. Yeah, happy to do that. You know, we're active on Facebook and Instagram. Both of those, our handle is US Botanic Garden. Um, so you can find us on both of those. We also have a YouTube channel uh, where we record Many of the programs that we offer, we're able to offer recordings of those. If you weren't able to join live, find out what's going on there. In addition to, you know, I'll, I'll give a plug even to Susan. She records some great morphology videos talking about different plants and the, the wonderful different botanical morphologies in their stories. Um, and there's a whole series of videos posted there um, that we've been working on over, the, over this year. Um, so yeah, all sorts of different content. If you're a YouTube user and you like to subscribe to channels, you can definitely subscribe to ours there. Um, we've even been, been moving our famous uh, American Roots concert music series onto uh, YouTube and offer that online. And those can all be found on YouTube as well. So lots of different offerings in addition to the cooking demos and various stuff that we've already offered. Um, we're pretty active there on YouTube as well. Cool. And Susan, I'm going to have to ask you for our listeners to define morphology and just give a, a maybe a quick overview of what those presentations would entail. Yeah, absolutely. So this came out of, uh, um, I give a tour every every month that has a different theme uh, that's all around morphology. And morphology, you can think of it as the sort of structures of plants that you can see. So it's not anatomy, which is the sort of cellular structure and whatnot within the plants. It's, you know, the leaf shape and the surface of the leaf and the edge of the leaf. It's the stem. It's how the leaves are attached to the plant. It's the flowers. It's the fruits. That's uh, the roots, um, so the things that we can see with our naked eyes. And my morphology walks uh, are typically once a month. And since we couldn't have people come uh, and, and you know be in person on tours, I decided to turn these into videos. And I basically just pick a 
plant. Sometimes Devin says, hey, will you do a video about this thing I saw the other day? Um, sometimes people suggest them otherwise. And I, I basically just talk about uh, the, the structure of the plant and how it functions. And sometimes I give other information too, like maybe something about its pollinator, um, but really focusing on kind of the overall structure of the plant and how that impacts either a pollinator or just the beauty of the plant, um, its interest, that kind of thing. And it's been really fun for me um, during the pandemic to really experience the garden in a different way. Without visitors, the plants are sort of left to, you know, kind of grow as they grow as they will. And in some regards, of course, we're still gardening, so we're still maintaining um, the, you know, the plants and whatnot. But uh, but they do, uh, they have kind of taken over in some areas in, in a way that's been really fun to see. And it's also given me the opportunity to explore the garden and and times and seasons when I normally would be very busy with meetings and other things. And uh, so really been able to highlight some of the wonderful plants in our collection and some of the great work that our horticulture team does. Hmm. That's such a unique and interesting way to come at looking at plants is the, the shape of the leaves or their structure. Um, so that would be really fascinating, I think, to to watch and, of course, participate in person when we can. And then I want to ask you, Susan, before we go about your conservation work. Sure. Yeah. So the garden has a long history of partnering with uh, different organizations across the country uh, to um, advance conservation. So we have wonderful partnerships with Botanic Garden Conservation International, the U.S. office. Um, we helped start the North American Orchid Conservation Center with Smithsonian. And um, we also have worked with a particular scientists uh, advancing conservation of, of certain plants uh, within our living collection. We certainly have a large uh, rare plant collection where we are maintaining these plants uh, in cultivation that maybe cannot be maintained in the wild for various reasons. And uh, we have been expanding recently in the last uh, about four years, I guess, our uh, wild collecting of plants as well. And there's definitely some wonderful conservation implications of this and being able to bring plants into cultivation that maybe either were not in cultivation uh, previously or were bringing new germplasm, new genetic diversity into uh, cultivation. And we have also uh, really wonderful collaborations with other gardens uh, here in the US. Uh, just as an example, we've got a partnership with um, Chicago Botanic Garden where we do exchange of different plant materials and in particular focusing on some of our rare plants and exchanging pollen uh, with them and with many other gardens as well so that we can maintain the genetic diversity of these rare plants in cultivation. So we have something come into flower, we'll collect the pollen, share it with them, they'll share their pollen with us, we'll hand pollinate these plants and grow up seeds. And then we also have a pretty robust program where we will share plants out uh, with other gardens and with, uh, and with universities as well to make sure that these plants are living in multiple institutions, not just uh, at, at ours or at a handful of other gardens. Yeah, it's wonderful to hear about the sharing program because one does wonder um, about the rare plants and, and how they might be saved and propagated. Yes, and I think you know, a really important aspect uh, of rare plant conservation is cultivation to, to grow more uh, you know, individuals of these plants. And those sometimes can be planted back out into the wild. And there are many gardens that have really wonderful, robust programs where they are doing repopulation, so planting back out into the wild, but there are many plants, as I mentioned, that cannot be uh, you know, put back in the wild for various reasons. An example of that would be um, the cabbage on a stick, the brighamia, which is a native Hawaiian plant uh, whose pollinator no longer is, uh, it's extinct, their pollinator is extinct. And so these plants don't have any way of reproducing in the wild. So 
putting them back into the wild. They're just sort of dooming them to, to die. They can't reproduce on their own. And so that's a plant, just as an example, that really uh, the only kind of future for it is in cultivation. And we have a very active program uh, with that plant in maintaining its, its genetic diversity in cultivation and ensuring that many gardens uh, continue to grow the plant. Wow, that's fascinating. And Devin, I wanted to ask you, I think this comes up a lot with uh, visitors to the garden and they want to know what the oldest specimen is in the collection and if you have anything that's original to those first plant explorers. You're right. It's a very common question. You know, people hear that we're turning 200 and they want to know what are our oldest plants. And we have four plants that date back to our founding permanent plant collection that we have, um, which was from 1842, the U.S. Exploring Expedition. Congress sent out multiple ships to circumnavigate the globe for multiple years. They left in 1838. They came back to New York Harbor in 1842, and they had things on board from, from this scientific survey, um, and they had living plants, they had uh, dried plant specimens, and they had artifacts. And all of those things became foundations for institutions that still exist today. Those those cultural items went to Smithsonian and they're in their permanent collection. The uh, dried plants went and founded the National Herbarium. And those living plants came to us um, as we'd been founded back several years before that. We'd kind of petered out of existence for just a few years right before 1842. Um, some funding had run out. Um, and so we kind of existed in name, but not really in, in much uh, act, active work and, and sharing things for a few years. And then in 1842, we were really reinvigorated with this permanent plant collection that came in from the U.S. Exploring Expedition. And we have four plants, uh, three of which are in the conservatory. One is outdoors in Bartoli Park. Actually, you can still see it today if you walk by in Bartoli Park, um, kind of on the south end of the garden uh, in the middle um, near the administration building, you'll find a jujube um, that dates back to that as well. Sometimes there are cuttings of the original plants that have been propagated. Uh, that that uh, jujube is a good example of that. Um, so the genetic material, as we understand it, dates back to 1842. The cells in particular you're looking at, you know, as with many plants, the cells regenerate and grow and, and continue to survive. So um, it might not be the exact same cells alive today, but the, the DNA the genetic material dates back to that. And so um, we're excited to kind of have living pieces of history, both American history and our own history uh, still alive today. And, and I think it's a testament, you know, people ask, well, wow, how do you still have plants alive today that, that date all the way back in their, their genes to 1842. And I think that's the beauty of what a botanic garden can do, right? Like we've got these specialists, we've got a whole uh, series of trained individuals whose passion and expertise is, caring for plants. They're growing plants. Um, we have this operations team that supports these plants every single day, making sure our facilities are exactly what they need to be to provide the right climate and heat and humidity and air and water and all the different things that grow that takes uh, takes growing these plants and, and making them survive and, and flourish. And so because we have this team and that's what they're dedicated to do is to grow and care for these plants and share them to the public, we can do that, right? We can do that in a way that maybe a home gardener can't do. And I think that, you know, that's why I love of botanic gardens and I've always have loved going to gardens and seeing the different collections around the world. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm honored to work at this one now and, and for the U.S. Botanic Garden to be turning 200 and, and still existing and sharing plants. Um, you know, I think that's, that is a testament to, to 
the importance of plants in people's lives and to the U.S. Botanic Garden for many years um, doing what it is able to do best, which is grow and share plants with the public. Hmm, and it's so important. And there's so uh, much, uh, we would call the term plant blindness um, in our society these days where people just think of plants as background material, um, maybe to decorate a living room or something and don't even see the plants that um, having a place that's dedicated um, for us plant geeks is a wonderful as asset to have. Happy to, to fill that niche. Absolutely. And and I always love when I'm trying to connect with somebody about plants and they say, I really, I don't like plants. I don't have, they don't have nothing, they have nothing to do with me. You know, I like to say, what do you think your shirt is made out of? Or what did you have for breakfast today? Or, you know, just to find the things that, that really they've, they've been using plants all day long and they didn't even think about it. So uh, counteracting plant blindness is, is really a passion of ours for sure. Huge thank you to um, Sahara Moon, who had to leave us earlier, but especially to Susan Pell and Devin Dotson from the U.S. Botanic Garden for joining us today and indulging uh, my plant geekiness. And um, any final thoughts or um, comments you want to make to our listeners about the U.S. Botanic Garden or about plants in general? I would say, you know, one of the things that's been really nice in the pandemic is that people have really been connecting to gardening. Uh, more than any other time that I've seen in my career, and uh, to to encourage people to continue that. So even when we can all get back to some you know semblance of normalcy, uh, to continue those uh, gardens in their backyards and their you know in their flower beds and their windowsills uh, and their living rooms, and to really continue to connect with plants and to to look at us as a resource. Uh, Devin's put together a wonderful wonderful webpage, the at home webpage. Uh, on our on our website, and uh, there's really wonderful resources there for people to continue uh, loving plants. I'll use that as my closeout. If you want to explore that at-home webpage that Susan mentioned, it's our, our main usbg.gov slash at-home, A-T-H-O-M-E, um, and you'll find all sorts of tours there, but also everything from there's coloring books. We, we actually um, have a U.S. Botanic Garden coloring book. So if you want to download pages and either print them out or color them digitally, that's there as well. There's all sorts of resources on the page. Um, it'll also jump you into our many different programs that we're offering that you can find what's coming up. We've just launched um, over 70 different programs for the fall just a few weeks ago uh, that are all online. And so, you know, if you're if you have an interest in plants, you maybe think you know a lot and want to dive in a specific topic, or you maybe think you don't know much at all and want to learn more. We kind of have an offering of many different entry points uh, and would love to talk about plants and celebrate them with you. We invite you to join us. Thank you, Devin and Susan. Thanks, Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter by going to anchor.fm backslash Kathy dash gents backslash support. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can become a listener supporter and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. Another way to support Garden DC is to go to WashingtonGardener.com and subscribe to Washington Gardener magazine. Plant Profile Mexican Feathergrass 
Nacella tenuissima. Mexican feathergrass is a versatile ornamental grass that has many uses in the home landscape. It can be used in groupings as a specimen plant, for edging, and in containers. In spring, the grass is a lime green that sends out blonde colored seed heads in summer, and finally in fall, the plant turns a tawny golden color. This grass has lovely movement and drama in the garden. It can add a layer of texture that blends well with many other plants, such as tall sedums, Brazilian verbena, and echinacea. It's hardy to zones 7 to 10. It can grow in situations from full sun to part shade with good drainage. It is drought and heat tolerant. Mexican feather grass is a relatively small grass. Its mature size is approximately two feet high and wide. It can be divided in the springtime and is a low maintenance plant in our region. However, it can be an aggressive spreader in other areas like California. The Latin name for Mexican feather grass recently changed from Stipa to Nacella, which has caused a little bit of confusion but you will hear people call the grass by either name. They're all the same plant. Mexican feather grass. You can grow that. For this week's What's Blooming in the Garden, I took a stroll around and made a list. So I have mums, toad lily, goldenrod, butterfly bush, some double rows of Sharon, which are sterile, blue mist shrub, sedum autumn joy, terrenia, petunia, fuchsia, bacopa, impatiens, begonias, marigolds, alyssum, and more. I think the favorite thing that's in bloom this week in my garden is Mexican bush sage. So it's a tall salvia, gets kind of long and lanky, but what I love about it are the fuzzy purple flowers. They remind me of Gonzo from the Muppets. Um, They're just so fun uh, and have such a great texture to them and such a bright purple at this time of year when everything else is coming up in tawny and darker tones. So. I highly recommend Mexican bush sage to cheer yourself up in the garden. You can find Washington Gardener online at washingtongardener.com, on Twitter at WDCGardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.